Welcome to the Sword on the Trowel, the podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. I'm Tom Askell. Thank you so much for listening to the Sword and the Trowel. And thank you so much to our FAM members who help us and support us in so many ways. Uh, the FAM is the Founders Alliance members. And they're people that support us every month so that we can get a faithful teaching out to the churches so that we can labor for the recovery of the gospel and reformation of churches. So if you want to know what it means to be a FAM member, just go to founders.org. Click on give and you can get all kinds of information about it. And don't forget about the facts. The facts, Founders Alliance churches as well. All of that's on the internet. You can go there and find it. Hey, we have a conference coming up, a national conference, May 14th through the 16th. There's a little picture of it right there, man. There it is. Um, We would love for you guys to join us at this conference. There's still time to do so. Right. Uh, Meet us at the Sealbach Hotel, downtown Louisville. Uh, we got a great conference coming up, The Gospel and Justice. May 14th through 16th. All right. So, um, you know, in our first segment here, we like to talk about something either that's going on in the culture, something that's going on in the news, some key principle that's helpful for pastors or Christians to think about. and uh, Or something course, that's coming up. Of course, you put you put something on my plate that... that uh, that I didn't even know about, and now we want to talk about and we want to deal with. That's because that I'm on the cutting edge of what's the, happening in the world today. You're on the cutting edge, and that is women preachers. Women preachers is the thing that's going on in the world today. And uh, this uh, makes, us, makes us sad in one sense. Um, it makes us chuckle in another sense because of the way that it's being presented. Mm. And yet the church is going to need wisdom here because the, the world is saying, hey, let's empower women. And we say yes and amen. Let's empower women. Uh, but what are we going to empower them to? Yeah. Are we going to empower them to faithfulness to God? Are we going to really biblically empower them to flourish? Or are we going to empower them to something else. Anything you can do, I can do better. Um, because that kind of thing, that kind of thing happens. So hey, let me ask you this, Jared, what are you going to preach about on Mother's Day? Um, I, I don't know yet. <laughs> I wonder if Beth Moore knows. Beth Moore, I think she knows because Beth Moore is going to preach uh, on Twitter. Uh, she she actually was talking about five things you could do um, um, if you still had the margin to pursue. And then she wrote that she would teach a Sunday school class just to bother the Calvinists. Um, and she <laughs> yeah. said, I'm, a, I'm in a tad of a mischievous mood. And then uh, another friend replied, uh, yours truly, meaning her, is preaching, preaching in all caps, three services at a Southern Baptist church on Mother's Day. And then she writes, but shh. Yeah. And then Beth Moore says, I'm doing Mother's Day too, Vicki. Let's please don't tell anyone about this. So they're having fun, which, you know, good to have fun on Twitter and uh, social media. But the fun which they are having is the celebration of them preaching. And, of course, this opened the floodgates then. Other women began to say, oh, I'm going to preach. My husband's the pastor, and he lets me preach. And other women, uh, Dwight McKissick, jumped on the board with this. And he said, yeah, we're going to have women preach at our church, too, on Mother's Day. And there's nothing wrong with women preaching. And so what this has done is whether Beth Moore intended to do this or not, is she has just kind of pulled the curtain back a little bit mm-hmm. to show what's been going on. These weren't convictions that just popped up yesterday right. for a long time. And now they're in a position and they're feeling comfortable enough to start making these things public, of what they're going to do. So I wonder, you know, what what would uh, Beth Moore and these other women preach? I have a recommendation for them. I think okay. they ought to preach 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 13. Oh, first Timothy chapter two, verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And for those people who would go, oh my goodness, I can't believe they quoted that verse. Why, why would you quote that verse? Because that's <laughs> because so, it's in the Bible. That's so mean. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, first it's because it's in the Bible. And then second, it's because it is loving. What, what is loving about empowering a woman to sin? Mm. Mm-hmm. What's loving about that? Yeah. but This is transgressing a command of God. But here's what happens. And the uh, People who would say, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. That's not what that verse means. You know, this verse means that there were problems in Ephesus with certain women. And so Paul's thinking about those certain women saying, I don't permit a woman like those certain women to teach or have uh, exercise authority over men. And so they they completely do exegetical Uh gymnastics. Uh to get around the plain, simple meaning of this text. Right, yeah, we need to do a Bible study because, I mean, it's important that we understand the Word of God, we understand what what justice requires, and that's coming to Scripture. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. The Apostle Paul is grounding his admonition here in creation, and he's grounding it in uh, the fall of what occurred. And we have to take that seriously and consider the implications of it. It's not just concerning one thing for one particular time. Right. And what this does is this exposes some of the concerns we've talked about on uh, this show for a long time. And that is this underlying presupposition that has come in to the church from the world, this idea of equality, that if people don't have things exactly the same mm-hmm. in terms of what's available to them, what they can and cannot do, uh, what's provided for them, then somehow that is un just. Mm-hmm. And so with that presupposition, women have not been pastors, not, have not been elders in biblically faithful churches. And so that presupposition starts to operate, well, why are we repressing women? Why are we oppressing women? Why are we holding women back? We need right. to tear down that hierarchy and allow women to do what men do. And you come to a verse like this, well, with that presupposition operating, you have got to reinterpret this verse. Right. And that that is a worldly presupposition. Absolutely it, it is. is. It is an anti-Christian, anti-Bible presupposition. It's based on a di- idea of absolute, outright, full egalitarianism, full equality in every single sense of the term. And if you if you operate off that, this is the, really the problem. I, I understand people are thinking, well, we're really doing something good but you're not doing something good because there is a real standard. So the standard for justice for a woman is not a man. Absolutely. And the standard Absolutely. for justice for a man is not a woman. But if you take, if you get rid of scripture, you're, well, that's what you're going to be left with. That's a humanist understanding of equality. Right. Well, it's just got to be every, everything's the same. Well, no, scripture is the standard for what is just concerning a woman. And scripture is the standard for what is just concerning a man. And if, if you're, This is a clear example of someone who's in the name of women's empowerment is actually oppressing women. Absolutely. You know know what it does for women like your wife, my wife, other godly women in our church, other godly women around the world is it begins to sow seeds in not necessarily their minds, but other people's minds of look how repressed they are. Look how oppressed they are. Nobody's letting them preach. Nobody's encouraging them to do everything that a man can do because they're operating on these false standards. Yeah, that's going on. And I know the the women in our church, we, we've been talking about these things and teaching these things, teaching them to my wife, teaching them to my children. And my wife sees through this stuff in an instant. So I yeah. mean, she's, she's not sensing any sense of oppression. But there are women who are being oppressed, Absolutely. namely Beth Moore in this, whatever, whoever the pastor is that's, that's having her preach and whoever the pastor is having the other woman preach. And 
across Southern Baptist churches, if there's more, those pastors need to be rebuked. Absolutely. Those pastors are oppressing these women. They're and, enabling them to transgress God's command. And, you know, I mean, Beth Moore is very popular and I, I don't read or listen to what she does. So I couldn't tell you specifically. People have sent me things that are uh, concerned to me about her understanding of revelation and how God communicates his mm -hmm. revealed uh, word to us today. But there are leaders, denominational leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, evangelical leaders who speak so highly of Beth Moore and being dear friends of Beth Moore. And I wonder which one of those is going to pull Beth Moore aside in the name of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture and say, hey, Beth, uh, this is really not a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we need to see that, that there is an ideology underneath this thing that's going on. Right. Feminism is a real thing. There are three waves of feminism. You can read up on this and see what's going on. And it, it's rooted all the way back. It's connected to a Darwinian understanding of the world. Um, it's tethered up with the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's a godless way of thinking about the world and thinking about equality. And it's going to result in the oppression of women. So if I were talking to a woman that says, I, I feel like I want to teach the word of God, I'd say amen, yeah. because you are to teach the word of God. Yeah. You are to teach the word of God to your children. You are to teach the word of God to women. You are to teach the word of God. Don't You're not being limited here. But the man who's saying to you, yes, um, you go and stand at the pulpit on Sunday and teach the word of God authoritatively, preach it to men. Look to scripture and see that man is not helping you. That man is not for your empowerment. Now, he might know what he's doing. He might be intentionally manipulating you to that end, or he might just be ignorant. He might not know what he's doing. But I want to say, listen, sister, look at, look at the Word of God. And remember, what, what God has given us is what's best for us. And yeah. look to the Scriptures, be encouraged and empowered to trust God and follow His commands. And, and it's a failure, as you're pointing out, of manhood. It's a mm -hmm. failure of the kind of leadership that God calls elders, pastors in churches to exercise. And here's something else that we need to take into consideration. And we're Southern Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist friends. This is not something that is coming. This is something that is here. Yeah, It is here. And the question needs to be asked for Southern Baptist, is this the kind of convention we're going to be? Is this going to be okay to have churches in our association that platform women preachers to exposit the Word of God in congregations on the Lord's Day during worship services in an authoritative manner. Yeah, we have to address that issue. And, and to, to our brothers that would like, you know, douse their hair in gasoline and set it on fire and go running out in the streets because of a situation like this. Remember this, God has set up the world to work a certain way. And, and, and his commands are not are not burdensome. They're, they're good for us. And as you follow them, you're going with the grain. Well, as you transgress God's commands, as this is clearly doing from the text that we've cited and other texts mm -hmm. in Scripture, when you go against the grain, it doesn't work. Uh, Proverbs says the way of the transgressor is hard. Yeah. And so, so uh, trust in the Lord. Remember, he's sovereign. Don't go nuts and start saying all kinds of things that are ignorant and all kinds of things that aren't going to be helpful to people in, in these delicate kind of situations. Trust the Lord. It, it, it's not going to work. Right. The, 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 those who go against God's word, we see that they really do go down. Jesus reigns and rules. Those who get in step with what he's doing in the world with his instruction, uh, they flourish. And on this particular issue, if you're Southern Baptist, look forward to Birmingham and the convention coming up in June and watch for a special announcement from founders about an event that we're going to have 
at the convention. Oh, yeah. Coming up at the SBC. We've got a little something up our sleeve. A little sleeve. something we got planned. All right. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk about a book that you wrote. You wrote a book. I wrote a book. From the Protestant Reformation to the Southern Baptist Convention. In 70 pages. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Founders Ministries has been able to do what we've been doing for 35 years because people have joined with us and become part of our family. Today I'm inviting you to become a part of the Founders Fam as well. Become a Founders Alliance member. You can do this at different levels as you contribute to the work that Founders is engaged in. By going to founders.org you can see that you can give at the trowel level, you can give at the shield level, or you can give at the sword level. And if you give at any level we're going to send you a Founders package of materials. We have other exclusive material that we would make available to you as well as you contribute to help us build this ministry for the glory of God. Hey, welcome back to The Sword and the Trowel. We have entered into uh, part two of our podcast where we talk about uh, different books that have been profitable to us. And uh, this one was profitable to me. I guess it was profitable to you at some point um, because you wrote it. Yeah. And uh, it, it's got this snazzy cover. Uh, isn't that clever? Uh, yes. Um, that, that cover came back in style. <laughs> I, so there's a story there to those of you out there who uh, care about these kind of the, things. The aesthetics of Founders Ministries. Yes. the young. That's the story. The young, the young one over here um, has pointed out at times that this cover is, um, is different. It's unique. And, um, but, but, but look what's on the cover. Do you is, recognize it? Yeah, uh, no. That's it's a Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc. There you go. And so there's a point. There's a there's artistry <laughs> behind it. And it's got a lovely Puritan title. I do love that. From the Protestant Reformation to the Southern Baptist Convention, what hath Geneva to do with Nashville? You don't so, even have to read the book. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to read the book. So you wrote this book. Um, and Tom, what does... Uh, the Reformation have to do with the SBC? Well, I mean, obviously, it's not just the Reformation. We praise God for what he has done throughout history from the creation and Old New Testament and uh, the patristic era all through mm -hmm. the 2,000 years of Christian mm -hmm. history. But the Protestant Reformation, without a doubt, was a, uh, a wonderful cataclysmic event that has shaped the world. And that movement of God in the 16th century where the gospel of God's grace was recovered and where the authority and sufficiency of scripture was come to, they came to understand it more clearly, where the nature of the church, then seeds for the nature of church were sown. So everything that took place in the 16th century with the clarification of those issues, both the uh, material foundation on which we stand, scripture, and the um, or the formal uh, principle of reformation, the scripture and the material principle of justification by faith, all of that set in motion things that, that continued on for generations resulting in the modern Baptist movement mm. out of which the Southern Baptist convention was founded in the 19th century. So yes, there is a lineage that we trace back from today through the uh, early Baptists in North America to the English Baptists that came out of English separatism, independent uh, Puritanism to the Reformation. So that's that stream of understanding the authority of Scripture, understanding the centrality of Christ alone for our salvation is very much where we are today. So Baptists, Southern Baptists, are very much sons or grandsons of the Reformation. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. We're not cousins, as uh, one prominent 
Southern Baptist leader once said. Oh, really? Some yeah. said we're, we're cousins. Cousins. Interesting. Yeah. So, so this practically, kind of pointedly, concerns a confession, an understanding yeah, of right. a particular confession. You had the Westminster Confession in London in the midst of the 17th century. Which, by century. the way, James Boyce, the founder of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh-huh. called Our Confession, the Westminster Confession. He said, Our Confession. Oh, Isn't that interesting? Boyce said, "This is our confession." Yeah. Do you think of that the Westminster Confession? Yeah. Do you think he was just saying, "Hey, I'm a, I'm a really a Presbyterian here"? Not at all. He was saying that our confession is with the Westminster Confession, except at those areas where we deviate, which is the foundation of the abstract principle. So I interrupt you. Go ahead. All right. So you go back to the 16th. So so mid, middle 17th century in England, right? Um, we have the Westminster Confession. Before that. And we have the first London that's confession, right. Baptist. Hey, that's right. We were there before. We beat you two to years. our Presbyterian two years. friends. Glad y'all finally caught up. Yeah. But we do stand on the shoulders of giants because they, they wrote a lovely confession Absolutely. called the Westminster Confession. And then the 1689 Confession is basically a baptized version of that confession. And the There's, Savoy. Of the congregation and the Savoy, right? So there's great, great, great unity between Absolutely. the Westminster Confession and the 1689 Confession, and um, I mean, you can just look at them all the way down. There's just there's a cut, copy, paste thing going on, except sure. when we need to tweak certain doctrines. And that 1689 Confession came over to Philadelphia in the mm-hmm. early 1700s, and then came down and landed at the Southern Baptist Convention. In this sense, in 1845. There were 293 delegates that gathered in Augusta, Georgia for the first Southern Baptist Convention. Correct. All of them, every last one of the 293 delegates came from churches or associations that held to that 1689 confession. I know that's a big deal, man. That's a pretty big deal. It's a big deal. Particularly whenever you take it in uh, in consideration that that was an age when men actually took their confessions of faith seriously. Mm -hmm. They weren't saying, oh, yeah, I believe in the confession of faith, and then hiding behind the back, their fingers being crossed. Yeah, so this shirt on the table, uh, black and gold here, that says, know your roots, and then down in the roots is 1689. Uh, We are unashamedly saying, yes, the Southern Baptist Convention, at its outset, was uh, a convention of churches that held to the 1689 confession, 1689 confession, churches and associations. This is a good, uh, robust confession. It is a reformed confession. It articulates the sovereignty of God. Um, It articulates um, the sovereignty of God in salvation, how that works in regeneration, um, that this is all to the glory of God. This means we are connected back to the reformers. So mm-hmm. when we say we are seeking the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches, we really are looking for the reformation of churches. I'd encourage guys that I've heard I've heard people say when they're when they're starting churches that people say, you know, I, I think I'm going to go with the say the New Hampshire, the 1853 mm-hmm. Confession, or the Abstract of Principles, and those those are great confessions. I'm not seeking to shake a stick at that kind of stuff, right? Uh, but Here's a very, it's kind of a technical thing, but I think it's really important when we're thinking about the reformation of churches. When you, when you say you're going to do that, the, the argument is, well, I don't want the people in the church to have to hold to everything that's in the 1689 confession. Well, the point is, you don't want them to have to hold to everything in the 1853 New Hampshire confession either. That's not how the confession is operating in the church. It's this is where we are, this is what we're committed to, this is what we're going to teach. The leaders of this congregation hold this and will take exceptions here and there as they come in to be established as leaders. But no, the whole congregation, if you say, well, I don't want 
I don't want the members that don't understand the doctrine of election to have to do that in the 1689. Well, it's in the other confessions too. Mm-hmm. So by by minimizing your confession, um, you're not achieving the goal that you often want. The question is how strict uh, must the adherence to the confession be? And we mm-hmm. certainly want all of our people to be confessional, and that is a part of the requirement of them becoming members. But when it comes to leadership, there's a greater standard for clarity and the uh, conviction about that clarity regarding what the confession has to say. So the, the couple of issues here, one is confessionalism. What does that mean? Every church, every Christian in one sense is confessional. And how confessional should we be? You know, should we just do that kind of um, in a generic way, or should we be decisive and clear and try to be as clear as we can possibly be? I think yep. about B.H. Carroll, founder of Southwestern Seminary, said a church with a small creed uh, is a, a, a small church or has, has a, a small Christ. Has a small Christ. Yeah, just yeah. a little bit. It, it, we, we need to expand as much as we can our convictions along the lines of Scripture, holding them in proportion with what is obviously more important than others. And then with that, recognizing in the denominational sense, institutional sense, that this confession, the Charleston Confession of Faith, the Uh Philadelphia Confession of Faith, this was the theological consensus out of which the SBC was formed. And so when we think even about the abstract principles on which the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was founded, Southeastern Seminary has adopted it, Mm -hmm. Midwestern Seminary has adopted it, it is an abstract which means it comes from something, right? And that something from which it comes is this Second London Baptist Confession right. of Faith. Yeah, you know, we one of the things you've done in this book is shown us all that we have a heritage. Yeah, we have a heritage as Baptist churches, and we have a heritage as the Southern Baptist Convention. So uh, this is available at founders.org. Go on there, check out the store, and uh, take advantage of this work that Tom has produced for us. Hey, when we come back, we're going to be talking about different commands of Scripture, uh, considering what it means to take up our cross. One of the most important issues going on in the world right now are issues over justice and social justice. So Founders Ministries is going to be holding a national conference in Louisville, Kentucky, downtown at the Seelbach Hotel, May 14th through May 16th in which we're going to address these issues and seek to bring biblical clarity to all of the confusion that's going on right now. We are only 15 minutes away from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And you can tell by my tie that it is a biblical spirituality tie, which means I am a PhD graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Believe it or not, I'm not the only speaker that's going to be there that is a doctoral graduate of Southern Seminary. We have four four of the men who will be speaking at this conference are doctoral graduates of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of which is uh, Dr. Josh Bice, the leader of the G3 conference in Atlanta, Georgia. We're also going to have other speakers like Pastor Tom Askell, who's the president of Founders Ministries and who has been heavily involved in the work of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary throughout the years and the professors that are there. Dr. Tom Nettles, who is the former professor of historical theology there at Southern Seminary, is going to be speaking as well. So we want to have a big family reunion. If you're at Southern Seminary as a student or a professor, come join us. Drive 15 minutes downtown to the Seelbach Hotel, and we'll see you May 14th through the 16th. 
In this third segment of our show today, we want to look at one of the commands of Jesus, which we've been doing, looking at the commands of the New Testament mm-hmm. here lately. Mm-hmm. And the one we want to look at today is found in Matthew and Mark, but also our, but we want to look at the Matthew edition of it. So Matthew 16, verse 24 and following. Let me just read it. It says, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay to each person according to what he has done. Mm. And so here we have a very clear command to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So yeah. we might even say it's kind of a a complex or multifaceted command. Yeah. Well, just taking take up your cross, that generally speaking gives us an orientation to life. I think about raising my children and teaching our congregation. Uh, how do I want them to think about the world? Well, I want them to know that suffering is going to be involved in in their experience. If they're going to follow Christ. If they're going to follow Christ. And, and you know, here's the thing. If you're not going to follow Christ, you're still going to suffer. You're still going to suffer. Yeah. And, and so be prepared for that suffering. And if you're going to follow Christ, that means you you take it. You take up your you cross. You choose it. You choose it. You yeah. enter into that suffering. So, I mean, you think about what Jesus is saying here. He's setting before us what it means to follow Christ versus uh, not following him. And if we're going to follow him, it's going to entail a take, taking up of cross, we need to think about what that means. What's uh-huh. that imagery about? And denying self. Uh-huh. And so, what he's saying is, we need to recognize there's something in Christ far greater than everything that's going to be involved in self denial and taking up an instrument of death, right, for ourselves, right. And and, and you know, we, kind of a phrase that says, "Well, that's just my cross to bear." That's just my cross. <laughs> I to got bear. bunions. That's you know? my cross to bear. Yeah, and, and 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 this can get like really, really bad when your worldview begins to you begin to call things that are call things crosses that aren't crosses. Well, what did Jesus mean when he says, "Take up your cross"? Yeah, it's 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 following the Lord Jesus Christ in His sufferings. He laid down His life uh, for others. Uh, for the betterment of others, for the good of others, for the glory of God, and you should suffer for righteousness' sake. You should take up your cross. You should obey the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that in doing that, you're going to face uh, trouble from the world. You're going to have to put to death something inside of you, that flesh that exists. Um, there's going to be pain involved in this, but it's it's clearly walking the road that Christ walked. It's not just suffering willy-nilly. It's death. It's it's suffering for the glory of Christ and for the good of people. It's death. A cross had no other purpose or ultimate purpose than to kill the person who was crucified. And it was to be done painfully. It was to be done shamefully. Mark's edition mm-hmm. of this, Jesus talks about, if you're ashamed of me, then you know I'm going to be ashamed of you. So to take up the cross is inherent in following Jesus. It means I must die to myself. Mm. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a follower of Jesus if you don't renounce yourself and embrace death yeah. of your old man and you follow him in the pathway of death and self-denial. You embrace the shame. You embrace the suffering, the hardship, because you have found in Jesus something far greater than all of that. Yeah, and dying well. We need to, we need to train up a whole generation 
to die well. Yeah. So when it comes to the time of death, they've already done it. They've mm -hmm. been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Putting the old man to death and willing to follow in that, uh, that road of suffering and pain. Uh, but the, the sweetness of it, you know, it was for the joy that was set before Christ that he endured the cross. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't just want my kids to think, oh, I'm going to die. Blah, blah, blah. No, I, no, no. I, this I, is you're, you're dying for the glory of God. You're killing the old man for the glory of God. You're killing sin for the glory of God. You're spending your life for, for Christ's and, kingdom. And that is good for you. That's enjoyable. That's pleasurable in the ultimate sense. It's the same principle that Jesus teaches time and again, especially in that parable of finding the treasure in the field. You know, it says the man for joy goes home uh -huh. and sells everything he has uh -huh. for joy. What, what's going on there? This is more valuable than everything I'm giving up. Yeah. And that's true when we follow Christ, we see him as he is in his beauty, in his greatness, in his loveliness, in his kindness, compassion, mercy mm. for us mm. men. Mm. Take up your cross. Amen, man. Hey, thanks again for uh, listening to The Sword and the Trowel. Uh, do come join us for our national conference, May 14th through the 16th in Louisville, Kentucky. And check out what it means to join the fam at founders.org. Good to be with you.